0: Hello there and welcome to the seventh episode of The European Lens. In today's podcast, we're looking at the future relationship between the UK and EU post-Brexit. Five years on from the Brexit referendum, we have followed negotiations which have dealt with a series of issues. The most recent and possibly most contentious of those issues is the Northern Ireland Protocol. But where do we currently stand and what is the future relationship between the EU and the UK going to look like? Later, we'll hear from Claire Hannah. SDLP MP for South Belfast, and Nathalie Loiseau, the French MEP and former French Minister for European Affairs. But first I spoke to Sir David Lidington. David served in the House of Commons with great distinction for nearly 28 years, including more than nine years as a minister, in the governments led by former Prime Ministers David Cameron and Theresa May. He held the roles of Minister for Europe in the Foreign Office, Leader of the House of Commons, Justice Secretary, and Minister for the Cabinet Office, in which role he was also deputy to the then Prime Minister, Theresa May. I began by asking him how fractured the EU-UK relations are at the moment, and how can relations be rebuilt in the future?
1: I think that there's no getting away from the fact that relationships are pretty bruised at the moment. It, it depends a bit on who we're talking about. So I, I think, for example, that the UK's managed to probably maintain better bilateral relationships with some member states in the EU than with others. There's no, no hiding the fact that relationships between the British government and the EU as an entity, the European institutions, are not in a good way. Um, to some extent, I think that that is just inevitable. It's a consequence of the separation and both sides adjusting to a new and different reality. Some of it is the aftershock uh, uh, following the earthquake, can I put it that way? I, th- I think Brexit was a seismic event, certainly in British politics, and I think the first time the EU had lost a member state. Some aftershocks are probably to be expected. My view is, and I, I'm in the optimistic camp on this, I, opinions vary, my view is that the common interests of the UK and the other European democracies, and i including that the institutions of the EU, are such that we will be pulled together. But it will take a few years, I think, to build up gradually a a new equilibrium and a different style of a pretty close partnership. Um, I think that the good thing about the trade and cooperation agreement is that it is a floor which can be built on further if there's the willingness to do that. But I think probably we start with trying to build both good bilateral relationships between London and other capitals, but also focus on making the TCA work as well as possible. And that, that means goodwill uh, from both sides. Uh, the, the biggest problem, at the moment, in my judgment, is 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 the lack of trust on, on, on both sides. And we have to overcome that.
0: It won't be easy. As you say, there are aftershocks. But really, we do have so much in common. And if we want to develop our democracies, keep peace, deal with all the challenges you've outlined, we are going to have to build those new relationships, no question of that. But is there any motivation, do you think, in the UK right now to rebuild? Or is there too much preoccupation, if you like, with Brexit and the aftershocks?
1: I would distinguish between probably the the, the government and the British public. I think most of the British public are heartily sick of Brexit as an issue. The great appeal of Boris Johnson's election slogan in December 2019, get Brexit done, was not because there was overwhelming public support for his particular vision of a pretty hard uh, form of exit from the EU, but because people just wanted the issue out of the headlines, off the front pages, uh, off the top of the news bulletins. And they wanted their political leaders to talk about housing and jobs and schools and social care again that that was all, of course pre pandemic that has rather um sort of swamped every other political issue in the last year and a quarter but certainly i detected in that election campaign uh, a sort of war weariness with brexit i think with the government it is important to recognise that for the prime minister and for those close to him validation of brexit is important to them, that they will want to demonstrate that their call in 2016 was right. Um, And I think it will take time for things to calm. But having said that, I think look at what happened rather than at the rhetoric. And what's happened has been that on Iran, on Israel-Palestine, on climate, the British government under Boris Johnson has actually stuck pretty close to the mainstream European position. It hasn't gone herring off uh, following the blandishments offered by Donald Trump to uh, take his position on those issues. The other thing I just throw in is that what the referendum did in 2016 was the first time in my lifetime bring into being a significant vocal body of actively pro-European opinion the UK that I don't think it ever really existed before.
0: Very interesting to hear you speak about that sort of twin track. On the one hand, the Brexiteers having to seek validation by various means, and on the other hand, all of those initiatives and partnerships and building of relationships that you've described uh, with the EU. But that part is kind of quite subtle. It doesn't get spoken about that much. And I think very often we hear more about the brexiteers to quote uh needing to be stronger and continuing to to you know to go along the the brexit route and and highlight that as opposed to anything else in popular discourse anyway david
1: yeah i think that is a fair comment my you know advice to european friends is is to focus on where it is possible to work together and build up relationships from the bottom, if you like, looking at the practical issues where there are shared interests and shared objectives. The hang up that the British government has, and I you know, I personally, it's not a secret, I disagree with them on this, is that they are very nervous about the idea of formal relationships with the EU institutions. Uh, now, I favoured outside the EU, the UK to have a strategic close partnership on foreign and defence policy with the European Union, because it seemed to be that made sense in terms of a, a European pillar of the Atlantic Alliance. Um, and because CFSP can do some things that lie outside NATO's remit, particularly when you look at the Commission's uh, various tools. And and I think that there was my view, there was an opportunity missed. But I think the the judgment that the Prime Minister and the current cabinet made is that they they don't want to do this. Certainly not at the moment. I would hope that we'll get into the position where both the EU and the UK think more strategically uh, about the the position of democracies in the world, and both will perhaps look to a more structured partnership involving sort of frequent um, consultation between British and EU leaders, and perhaps you know, some regular forum for the UK to. Um, speak with and at the FAC, uh, but will enable that European pillar of the Atlantic Alliance to function more strongly than I think it's doing at the moment.
0: We'll hear more from David Liddington later in the podcast. I want to turn now to the impact on Northern Ireland with Claire Hannah. Claire is an SDLP Member of Parliament for South Belfast. She was previously a councillor, and of course she was in the Northern Ireland Assembly. As an MLA and re-elected there in both 2016 and 2018, and then elected to Parliament in 2019, I first asked her what her impression is of the situation in Northern Ireland at present.
2: Well, thank you very much, uh, Francis. Thank you for having me. In, in terms of where we are in Northern Ireland, it, it's 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 sad. I believe that we've spent. I, I suppose, five years of, of, of political energy and goodwill and legislative time and, of course, you know, financial and human resources trying to grapple with um, a, a problem that, uh, that we didn't need to have on top of the others. So um, we're not in a great place in, in that Brexit as we as we anticipated it would do has destabilized uh, and I suppose damaged relationships and it has inserted a lot of the very difficult things that dogged Northern Ireland for decades, things like identity and sovereignty and borders and things that the Good Friday Agreement was supposed to allow us to talk about less, because of Brexit, we have talked about them morning, noon and night uh, for the last five years. So uh, we're not in a great place. But as ever, um, solutions are available and and there are many people trying to find them uh, and implement them. Would you worry about the tensions
0: increasing, Claire, or do you believe that the protocol, you know, has it's not perfect? Or do you go along with the point that, look, at this is the best solution we've been able to come up with?
2: Well I think I think that's that's a good place to start. It's it's the why and the protocol is the result of, I suppose, trying to reconcile um the choice for a very hard Brexit that that the UK government made with the realities of the of the geography of the island of Ireland and of course the, the politics and the history as well. Um, and yes, that the, the protocol, nobody loves it. It's nobody's first choice, but it was kind of selected by process of elimination because the other options and and kind of configurations were, were, were voted down by extreme Brexiters. It has to be said in the UK government and indeed in the DUP. So that's where we're starting from nobody nobody would nobody would design it. and um, Yes, the tensions are worrying there there's there's I suppose there are people who are genuinely and I think it's important particularly those of us who who who, who would identify in part as, as Irish nationalists to acknowledge that it is Discombobulating for many unionists, and they do see it as a parody of a steam issue that we now have a barrier within the UK, the Irish Sea border, and I, I think th- there's there's no denying that, and there's no there's no attempt, certainly from the SDLP, to try and dismiss that. There is also, uh, but I suppose it's important to say that the practical impacts aren't as great as would have been. The practical impacts on a border on land, just the the reality of people having to say have their vehicle checked, or some of the many side roads that would have had to be closed off in order to facilitate a hard border, that is more onerous and more invasive than, for example. You know, the sausages that you bought, having had a check whenever they were on the lorry or whenever on the boat. They're just the, the, the emotional injury is the same, but the practical implications are not. Um, and then I suppose there has been over the last um, few months, really some negative actors using the protocol as I suppose a receptacle for lots of different grievances and lots of other political issues dissatisfaction maybe with the Good Friday agreement or the concept of power sharing dissatisfaction um you know with with uh you know other political relationships maybe dissatisfaction with policing dissatisfaction with the growing conversation around potential constitutional change for example and the protocol has kind of been used as a focus for that particularly by those people who who got us the protocol by not choosing better options um, so yes I mean here you, you always have to worry particularly if there are uh, those who, who aren't as interested in trying to make things work but, but as I say we have overcome big big challenges before and I'm, I'm, I'm confident we will do again. The
0: identity issue for unionism that is a, a very real issue for them isn't it Claire? I mean they are being treated differently no question north of ireland there is the border in the irish sea i mean do you think good leadership can deal with that and maybe take up the opportunities uh, that actually the protocol offers because some people would say it's the best of both worlds because you have the trade with the uk you have the trade with the eu and great opportunities you know for northern ireland are they being taken up at all
2: So opportunity is the key word. And it is also important to say that there have always been differences between Great Britain and Northern Ireland on all sorts of um, all sorts of things, um, you know, in in kind of social policies and in some economic policies and, and just a lot of things are devolved and different. So that concept shouldn't feel so acute but I accept that you know maybe particularly um people who who, who didn't seek brexit at all um that suddenly that they, they feel they're on a, on a different uh, footing but you are correct about there being uh, opportunities don't get me wrong from the stlp's perspective we were we were very pleased to be uh, part of the single market and to have no borders on the island of Ireland and uh, within the these islands and that would always be our preferred configuration but as we've been saying if life hands you lemon You make lemonade and the lemonade in this case is the fact, as you say, we are at the hinge of 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 the UK single market and the EU single market and nobody else um, has that. Uh, unrestricted access in both directions. So there are a lot of sectors, like agri-foods, for example. If you look at and and you don't you don't wish to prosper on others' misfortune, but if you look at say Welsh lamb farmers or some seafood producers in 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 Scotland, or if you look at parts of say advanced manufacturing, things like pharmaceuticals, um, that that are very very regulated, there are real opportunities, um, here to to take advantage of that. Now. We also know that investors, whether the domestic investors or, or foreign investors, the, the first thing they need is stability. They need to know that the rules are going to be the rules. Um you know they they need to to feel safe. They need to be able to plan do a three a five a ten year plan for their business and all of this you know flux and, and resistance is hampering that there's no doubt about that and and including um instability of the assembly and so on so so we, we need we need stability and we need clarity uh, and we need certainty uh, and businesses need to know that if they're going to invest in a certain regulatory framework that that's how it's going to to change Claire, if there was more flexibility
0: from, let's say, both the UK and the EU, could you see the practical problems, let's forget about the more ideological problems, but could you see the resolution of the practical problems making a real difference to attitudes and to the whole relationship set? Yes, absolutely.
2: So uh, the the first thing to say is that, I mean, the really obvious, you know, you don't get many silver bullets in public policy terms, but in fact, a veterinary and SPS deal would be that, that would keep, um, you know, coherence across the UK and and, and a sort of a a matching of the EU standards, and that would resolve about 80% of the checks. So that is, that is the big prize. The UK have indicated that um, they're not that keen on it, but they haven't really given a very rational reason as to why that's the case. So the door um, is still open. Um, Short of that, if the UK decide that they don't want to go down that uh, road, although it is worth saying that in these five years, they haven't identified EU regulations they want to you know, operated at a lower base than Um, the US have indicated that it wouldn't prevent them getting a deal there. So again, it's it's everything to play for. Uh, In the absence of that, yes, there are easings um, available. It is worth restating, that a world where there is a very hard Brexit and no border just doesn't exist and, and, and it's, 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 it's false for some to pretend that there's a secret third option if, if people are just are, are keen to look at it, but yes, there can definitely um, be uh, reducing of some of the, of the frictions and I suppose streamlining some of the processes, for example, We hear talk about trusted trader schemes being part of um, the mix, you know, uh, the the, the fact that so much of the goods that would be coming from Britain into Northern Ireland uh, would be being sold in, in, you know, big high street, you know, places you go to the supermarket. So those retailers have systems, they can trace that. Um, you know piece of item of food practically to your to your dinner table um, so but the systems need to be put in place and that isn't ready in part because this was all agreed so late some parts of the protocol um, you know businesses and those managing systems had had a matter of days and hours to put to put stuff um, in place it, it is again and lots of missed opportunities, it would have been logical to have, uh, you know, a meaningful extension period. I mean, Claire, you're in the House of Commons now, you're in the UK Parliament.
0: Do you see any motivation, any sort of wish to solve these issues, this SPS, for example, that would give such a relief to so many businesses and make it the whole border issue much easier, less custom checks and so on? Um do you see any motivation to get to that point within the Parliament?
2: Well, there's there's huge appetite. I, I sit on as well the UK Trade and Business Commission, which is a, a, a body of MPs from every party, it has to be said, including the Conservatives, including the DUP, um, and business leaders from, from various different sectors. And we we act like a scrutiny committee and, and just um, sector after sector, be it you know, the arts and creative industries, be it food and drink, be it aviation, be it, you know, parts of agriculture, all are saying, in fact, shouting, that this is the solution. Yes, there's there's appetite, I suppose, in um, a, a, you know across Parliament in different in different aspects of it. But look, you know, there's no point in denying it. Um, after the five years that you know it's it's caused a particular trauma and upset in Northern Ireland, but it has in
0: Britain as well. That's interesting. I'm wondering about the government's motivation around it. I mean, what about leadership? We're going to need really strong leadership to get to these solutions. We see some of the discussions uh, between the EU and the uk being very tense um, it's quite difficult to take that tenseness out of those discussions i mean that's the place those meetings between the eu and the uk where you would like to see that motivation coming through that you're saying you've got in the uk
2: trade and business commission um, any hope of that um, well, we we travel in hope. I mean, there are flashes of it again. I mean, we 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 understand that even within the UK cabinet, there's different viewpoints on, for example, the 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 pros and cons of the likes of the Australia deal, which I think somebody described, I think, very adequately as pr- performative divergence. You know, quick get a deal that has almost no economic impact just to show that we can. And I suppose it's another example of this. UK government essentially being a campaign group rather than a government, if you know what I mean. Just, just kind of everything is done for how it will play with a base or, 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 or you know, kind of what quotes you can get out of it, rather than really having that much of a vision for what post-Brexit Britain is supposed to look like. As I say, it isn't clear what they want to do with this newfound power. So, as I say, there are clearly voices within that government who say, at least in the interim, let's just hold steady, give businesses and, and I mean, really, while it's, it's difficult to disaggregate the impact of, of COVID and the impact of, of Brexit, there are very very clear we're now two quarters in so there are very clear examples in you know the financial sector and as I say in a lot of, lots of different sections of the economy that there is you know a sustained loss of trade. From your point of view then what does the
0: future of EU-UK relations look like?
2: The world has has gone through um, a, a, a turbulent time as well with, with Trump and so on with, with um, I mean, there's a few forces at play there, no doubt, um, uh, Biden is a rules-based guy. You know, he is somebody who has expertise in foreign policy and clearly wants to see a return to stable multilateralism. There, you know, it is about alliances in the world. There are big, big challenges with the with with the dynamic with uh, both China and and Russia. And you can see just even post the visit um, in in recent weeks. You know, the UK or the EU and the US. Um, reconnecting and, and and reestablishing that alliance. The UK, and I don't say this with any pleasure in any way, shape, or form, the UK is isolated. It's not involved in, in any major alliance and therefore it isn't expressing a particularly solid view or putting forward solutions on how to deal um, with those currents and there's only so long you can kind of bounce around using rhetoric and making eye-catching statements before you have to decide what you are and what you're for. Um, and hopefully that um, they decide to, to join the adults in that regard and trying to achieve good change.
0: Madame Nathalie Loiseau is a French politician, a diplomat and academic administrator who has served as a member of the European Parliament for the Renew Group since 2019. Previously, Natalie served as Minister for European Affairs in the French government from 2017 to 2019. Prior to this, she was Dean of the École Nationale d'Administration, the ENA, for five years and is also a diplomat within the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Natalie has a keen interest in Brexit and is a member of the UK Coordination Group in the European Parliament. I began by asking her what lessons have been learned from
3: the Brexit process. Well, we are not over yet. Brexit is not a moment, it's a process. Uh, And it will be something that will remain um, on the table, I guess, for years. I think the first lesson would be that um, complex questions deserve better than a simplistic answer. And uh, 2016, uh, this notion that the relation between the UK. And the EU uh, could be uh, discussed with a "remain or leave" option only. Uh, if you if you think about it, uh, it's absurd. Um, there is much more in our history, uh, in our relations, and in our destiny than decided to stay or to leave. But the EU respected a democratic decision. Um, And now we have been struggling to limit the damage of this decision, because so far we have seen no positive uh, outcome of Brexit.
0: Very damaging process. Do you think both for
3: the UK and the EU? Yes, no doubt. Um, uh, It's always easy to uh, look at uh, the other side of the channel uh, and wonder whether it's painful for them. It's painful for everybody. Uh, the EU is smaller, therefore uh, it could become uh, weaker. This is not the case, but still we are losing a friend, an ally, uh, and a country with a very special vision of the world, uh, a global vision, something that uh, I have always admired. I am probably one of the most Anglophile French people you could meet. So this is a loss, uh, and undoubtedly for the United Kingdom, deciding to weaken its relation with its closest and most important neighborhood uh, is still completely um, uh, absurd. Uh, Everything we will do from now will be uh, less than what we were doing before.
0: Very sad, in fact. I mean, do you think other countries have a less benign view of the UK, uh, other people than you have, uh, Natalie? I mean, are do you think other member states feel punitive towards the UK?
3: I do think, and I was involved, as you mentioned, at the very uh, beginning of our conversation. I was involved in the negotiation very early as a minister for European affairs in France, and people would call me minister for Brexit because it was eating more and more of my time. Nobody was uh, in a a mood of punishing the UK, no one around the table of the 27. The idea was to protect the interests of the European citizens in a very pragmatic uh, willingness to have a dialogue with the UK. Indeed, we we were uh, willing that the uh, relation between the UK and the EU would not be similar to the relation of a member state because either you're inside or you're outside. And because former Prime Minister Theresa May was repeating daily, Brexit means Brexit. Uh, But this was not the idea of a punishment. This was the idea of trying to make the better of a Bad decision and to protect the interests of the European citizens was a priority for Ireland, which has always been at the heart of the European position. Do you think that, for example, in France,
0: has it increased Euroscepticism or maybe in other countries? Or do you think actually it's had the opposite effect? Is it bringing the remaining member states closer together?
3: Well, first of all, um, I would say that in France, Uh, I I had a hard time explaining to the public opinion why we were making so many efforts to uh, still connect with the UK. There was a lot of Brexit fatigue uh, very early on, and people would say, well, let them go, uh, and they will see. Uh, And we were there to say, no, no, this is not how it has to be. But I think that the the trash media of the UK and some um, uh, unnecessary political uh, statements on the British side uh, made the French public opinion quite um, angry at at, uh, the United Kingdom. We had to fight against it. What I can also say is that if some uh, in our political parties were um, In favor of Brexit, uh, especially the far right, they had celebrated the referendum and its result. And they were very close friends of Nigel Farage and uh, Ukip. They changed their minds uh, when they saw what Brexit was really meaning. And now none of them uh, would campaign in favor of a Brexit. It's not popular at all. Uh, They struggle to say that, well, after all, they are in favor of the European Union. Uh, People don't really trust them and believe them, but they know that now nobody would go in this direction. So some other member states or let's say some other political leaders in the EU are still playing the game of if you're not nice to me, I will copy the UK and no one believes them. Because that's true. (laughs) In a sense, um, it put to light something. We were very poor at explaining before the uh, advantages, the benefits of the European Union. And uh, for people who worked on Brexit, I would say, especially uh, heads of state and government and ministers, uh, it forced us to have so many discussions in order to understand what were what were the priorities of other member states as regards brexit i've been to ireland i've been to the irish border i would have probably uh, taken more time to go to the irish border if there was not brexit and an urgent matter Uh, and i am always uh, surprised and positively so by the level of knowledge of my former colleagues or my colleagues in the European Parliament, about the Northern Ireland uh, protocol and about the Good Friday Agreement. This is something that has become, um, I would say, basic conversation uh, among the uh, Europeans, and it was probably not the case or not at this level before.
0: The support has been amazing for the Irish right across the member states, but Turning to the protocol now and the tensions between the EU and the UK and Northern Ireland, which remain? Are you hopeful? You were a member of the monitoring committee. What was that like? It seems to have been a very tortuous process overall
3: and seems to remain so. Well, we are still working on it. The UK coordination group was supposed to uh, uh, stop after the... uh, Uh, ratification of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Well, finally, we decided to uh, reinvent it uh, because there is still a need to monitor um, Brexit uh, related issues. So I'm still on it. And I keep on joking with my son that uh, I might transmit uh, my knowledge to him for the day he starts his professional life. Um, But it's a difficult issue The protocol is a complex text. Nobody denies it. But there were two possibilities. The first one was what was called the the backstop uh, and what was negotiated with Theresa May and was refused by uh, people in the uh, Conservative Party, including Boris Johnson. And there is the uh, protocol. And I can tell you that we've been... uh, trying to sort it out in every possible manner. There is nothing else. So the only uh, way of sorting things out is to implement the protocol with goodwill and good faith. The problem is the lack of trust. And it's huge. And that's a huge problem. When your counterpart um, signed a, a political declaration, then signed and ratified uh, uh, the withdrawal agreement, then signed and ratified the trade and cooperation agreement, but uh, on a regular basis, denies what it has committed to, Um, take unilateral unilateral decisions, Um, says that after all the protocol was not good, Uh, after campaigning in national elections to say that it was the best possible deal, it creates a tension um, where you never know what the next day will bring.
0: And actually, what do you make of the government that signs an international agreement and then is so ambivalent about its implementation? After all of the work, all of the detail, the backstop—you know—didn't work. We kept, we got the protocol, not perfect but workable, the best solution going forward and yet all of this tension in the negotiations still. Are you surprised that the UK has taken that
3: approach? Well, of course, hugely surprised, because the UK has always been at a place to uh, campaign in favour of rule of law, international order. Um, and it was admired for this, and it could still be uh but it hurts the international reputation of the uk well we always make a difference between um, some people in the government probably not all uh, and the rest of of the united kingdom and we get so many messages from uh, companies from uh, civil society from uh, mps who first were willing to understand why the eu was so firm and uh, was lacking flexibility and then understood that we were simply uh, trying to implement what was decided uh, in common. So it hurts the international reputation of the UK and I'm not gloating when I say that. Back to Sir David Liddington and I asked him how Brexit
0: is impacting the UK's ability to cooperate and work with other countries on the global stage and if we see that most acutely in the relationship with the US under president joe biden
1: yes i i think so far i mean contrary to some of the um earlier fears when when biden was elected that um the president has shown that he he is focused he is focused on the strategic picture and uh, he clearly sees the uk as continuing to be a very important close ally and things like the intelligence sharing relationship and the you know, the, the very deep economic military intelligence, um, cultural relationships we have with the US mean that, that that is a very powerful alliance and will remain so. And he, I think he also judges that Boris Johnson has a big majority in Parliament. You know, he's going to be around for some while. And therefore, you know, his job as US president is to establish a relationship with this man and, and, and his, his government. And I think as I read Biden, he also very different from Trump. He sees the EU as an ally, not as a rival or even a foe. Um, and, and that came through, I think, in Biden's actions and language uh, uh, when he attended uh, the meeting with the European Council in Brussels the other week. Uh, so I think if you're in the White House, you want... Your European allies to find a way through the the differences that they currently have and focus on the big picture, which from Washington is going to be the challenge from Putin and the strategic challenge, technological, military, economic from China, which I think is going to be the was the defining story of international relations in the 21st century.
0: Undoubtedly. I mean, when we look from an EU perspective uh, at the negotiations, the outstanding issues in relation to the protocol, there is a view that the UK is at the best ambivalent about, if you like to use the phrase, sorting out some of the outstanding issues on the protocol, some of the problems coming to an agreement on SPS. Is that inaccurate, that is very much the perception that, you know, there isn't a huge effort coming from the UK side. Now, I know the UK would say the EU needs to be more flexible, but it ends up in a bit of a standoff that isn't really very good for anyone, although there are more encouraging signs, I think, at present.
1: Yeah, there are some more encouraging signs. And my, my view on this is that there's got to be compromise um, on both sides. I think that with the Johnson government, I mean, I'm I'm very clear in my mind, you know, they negotiated this deal. I mean, they 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 campaigned to win the Conservative Party leadership uh, to depose Theresa May and, and and then to win the general election in 2019 uh, on a platform that the the backstop had to be replaced because it was it had brought the UK as a whole, in their view, uh, too close to the ambit of the EU law. I mean, it it provided for a de facto. Customs Union of the entire UK with the European Union for the duration of any backstop if it were ever invoked. Uh, but of course, I think they've got to own the deal they negotiated and ratified and celebrated as a great victory, which is um, permanent, not temporary, and which it does very clearly require trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland uh, to be treated differently, for there to be a certain number of extra checks uh, and inspections within the UK there in order to ensure the, the completely open border on the island of Ireland itself. Now, that, uh, I think, for so the UK, they have to own that. Uh, I think that on the EU side, I would like to see the Commission re-examine um, Michel Barnier's work on de-dramatisation. Because certainly in Theresa May's government, we had very productive negotiations with the Barnier team about that. I acknowledge that the May government was offering uh, alignment with the EU on agri food and a common rule book on industrial goods, insofar as that was needed to avoid checks on the Irish border. Um, but I think that you know, the, the sort of things we were talking about then, checks at the, pl- at the, at the manufacturing place, the workplace, checks on the market, um, risk-based spot checks, trusted trader schemes to mitigate the impact of uh, the, uh, the friction in trade within you know, my country um, is, is something that, that I think the EU could go, go back to. And that does mean of course, trusting the British government to to do that. And uh, as I said at the start, I think the, the lack of trust is the biggest problem at the moment. But I don't think that it is reasonable to be in a state of affairs where, as I understand it, you know, there are more checks, more forms being required to be filled in uh, on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland than uh, on all trade coming... Uh, into the European Union on its eastern frontier from Belarus and uh, Russia and, uh, and Ukraine and Moldova. Um, and that, that strikes me as an imbalance because actually, like Boris Johnson or not, you know, UK law at the moment still reflects EU manufacturing and uh, agri-food standards completely, um, UK inspections. Uh, are at the level that uh, the the EU would expect. Obviously, you know, we'd have to have transparency on that. But I could sort of can see the way to a move uh, to a compromise if both sides are willing and are prepared to put trust in the other. And I'd add to that that I mean, well, personally, I would have no problems with uh, alignment with between the UK and the EU on uh, uh, SPS and, and agri-food generally. Um, I mean, the Johnson government is clearly against that, but they have not ruled out a sort of self-standing UK-EU veterinary treaty, which might well, in substance, uh, mean that the UK followed rules that were identical to EU rules, but there would be review clauses, an exit mechanism, were that to be needed in the future.
0: Fascinating to hear you talk about the potential solutions that are there. But of course, as you said, David, it's about the trust in the relationship. Then you can begin to find the solutions. And if the trust isn't there and it seems quite fractious at the moment, uh, then you don't even get to talking about those possible solutions. Finally. Um, From your point of view, David, if we begin to deal with these uh, practical challenges, really, then sometimes the political tensions may well ease as a result. But if we don't, it's going to be far more difficult. In some ways, it's hard to look to the future of the EU-UK relations right now because it's in such a a state of flux. But from your perspective and all of your experience with uh, working with prime ministers at the heart of the British government, um, if you were to look five to ten years ahead, what sort of relationship would you like to see between the EU and the UK?
1: The way I would envisage it is that over time, the TCA would be supplemented by additional agreements, perhaps on policing, the foreign security policy, permanent deals on data and the like, and a habit of working together on many international issues uh, so that that European pillar of the democratic world could function effectively uh, on the global scene and and in our own region of the world. I think that uh, I, I don't myself look to rejoining. I think that probably the last thing that either the British people or the Twenty-seven really want to do at the moment is to go through the experience of the last five years in reverse again, and I think th- unless and until there were a clear settled majority position in the UK in favour of rejoining, with all that that would mean under those new circumstances, I, I just think that's off the agenda. You know, my children's generation may decide to do in due course; will be up to them. But I, I don't see this happening in in my sort of time in in, in politics. A fruitful relationship that looks a bit like a a, a very strong association agreement I could see working. I'm fascinated by some of Emmanuel Macron's thinking about the future of Europe, his concept of a Europe of circles, where you would have some uh, member states of the EU that shared the single currency but were more integrated than they are now on on economic and fiscal matters with certain political institutions to make such decisions accountable. But then there would be a circle of EU member states who either chose not to or were not eligible to join the euro immediately. And if you're thinking of a Europe of circles, then where do the UK or Norway or Switzerland dock into that? does that concept then also start to provide the EU with a framework for offering something to the Western Balkans and to the new democracies of Eastern Europe at a time when the EU is clearly pretty exhausted with the idea of further enlargement uh, for the time being, and when you know, all those countries I've mentioned would, would take it would to take a pretty long period of fairly drastic reform to get them in the uh, a position where they really were up to joining the EU and accepting responsibilities that came with that.
0: Thanks to all of my guests for joining me on today's episode. It is quite clear from my work in the Parliament and from today's conversations that the Brexit process is far from over. It would be fascinating to see where the UK government and indeed the British public decides to position itself globally in the years ahead. In the more immediate future, a practical and political solution is needed on the Northern Ireland Protocol. I believe a sensible compromise on both sides within the protocol is achievable and can resolve any outstanding difficulties. I do truly believe the EU and UK can have a close and mutually beneficial relationship In the decades ahead. The UK may have left the European Union, but they are still firmly a part of Europe. We'll be back soon with another episode of The European Lens. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.